0: All right, so to get started tonight, I want to tell y'all, I'm really grateful to be here because the beginning of this month, I wasn't sure if I was going to be, and I don't want to over-dramatize it, but the beginning of this month, I was dealing with COVID and pneumonia and really struggling to breathe, and again, I don't want to over-dramatize it, but after having gone to the doctor and getting medicine and coming back and just, like I said, struggling to get air and feel like I was drowning... I remember a moment where I looked at my son, and I thought, I need to live because my son needs a dad. I looked at my wife, and I said, I need to live because my wife, I don't want to leave her with grief without a husband. So I had some of those thoughts where, you know, you just don't normally have that in life. And I remember making a prayer, and I prayed, Lord, please, just please let me live because my children, I want to be here for them. I want to be here for my wife. And I prayed for tonight. I said, Lord, I really want to be able to teach. So you have sheep that need to be fed. I want to be able to feed them. So for me to be here tonight, it's special. I wasn't going to share that, but Jess told me that I should. And I think I agree. You need to know that tonight, me being here is an answer to prayer. Not that I'm special, but because God has sheep. He wants to feed his sheep. He told that to Peter. Do you love me? He said, yes. He said, feed my sheep. And tonight, especially, if you were here two weeks ago, you know, Joe left us at the cross where Jesus died and talked about everything that had accomplished for us, the forgiveness of our sins, atonement made, And uh, tonight we're going to talk about the resurrection And I don't think the resurrection is understood I don't think it's talked about enough Let me ask you this, what is the gospel? Would everybody in here in some way or another Point to the cross? Raise your hand if you think the gospel includes the cross It does The gospel includes the cross Does the gospel include the resurrection? Raise your hand if you think the gospel includes the resurrection Yes, yes Then why do we go out and we share gospels? gospel Jesus died for you and that's it We never get to the second part of the gospel. We never actually get to the good news. The good news is that Jesus is alive. He's resurrected. And when you're talking about the resurrection, the reason that's important is because if Jesus is alive, we hope that we will be alive. There is no life without his life. If our our gospel was Jesus died and we end there, what kind of news is that going to a dead world and saying Jesus is dead? That's not good news. So the resurrection is very important. I think that all of Scripture fails without it. I think that without it, we don't actually have a gospel. We don't actually have a faith. We don't actually have anything that we preach. And those are big claims. So I want to read for us. If you've got your Bible, you can turn there with me. We're going to read and then we'll pray for the Lord to bless this. Open up to 1 Corinthians 15, if you're unfamiliar with where it is. You've got the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You've got Acts, Romans, and the 1 Corinthians. Seventh book in the New Testament. Chapter 15 is almost the last. Starting in verse 1, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers... That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Did y'all catch that? That's a key verse. We're going to look at that tonight. I want to make sure that you hear that. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let's pray. Well, thank you so much for your word, how it informs it, how it teaches us, how it brings us to you. Lord, tonight you have sheep in this room. I pray that they would be fed. Pray that the sheep that are not part of the fold yet would be brought in, that they would be given believing hearts. Lord, I want to pray that you would help me and clear my mind. Make this prayer in Jesus' name, Amen. So I want to start back at the first four verses. Y'all look with me again at 1 Corinthians 1 through 4. We're going to make some points here. Paul says, "Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel," and I want you to stop there. When he says, I want to remind you of the gospel, everybody, when they hear the gospel, that word, something comes to your mind. I want you to take note of it, and here's why. I want scripture to be our teacher. I want scripture to inform us what the gospel is he's about to tell us. So whatever is in your head right now, as this is the gospel, if we follow through and you see something that he says that's not there, we're going to add it. And if you have something in your head that is the gospel and he doesn't say it, we're going to take it away. Because he says this is the gospel. So that's why it's important. As we look at this, I always do this. When Scripture makes a claim, I'll take a mental note. What do I think that claim is? And then I will let Scripture teach me what it is or what it isn't. So we're going to do that. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And here's where we get to our key verses, three and four. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now he goes on, but him going on is just proving the resurrection by all of the accounts of people seeing it. That was the gospel. He stopped there. He wants to teach us the gospel. That's it. I delivered you as our first importance what I also received. Christ died, was buried, was resurrected. The good news is that Jesus is alive. He died for our sins, but he's alive. That's the good news. If the news stopped with Jesus died, there would be no good news. That's not good. Plenty of founders of the faith have died. Christianity is different. Christianity is different. We are the only, the only ones who claim a risen founder of the faith. And it's that resurrection. There's there's tons of things about Christianity that would be different than other religions. Most every other religion would say something along these lines. If you work hard, or if you're enlightened enough, or if you X, then you'll get the reward. They all lay it out like that. They all lay it out like that. Christianity is different. It says if you have Christ, which is the reward, then your life will be this way. Christianity is backwards from other religions. It's backwards. I heard a quote. I listened to a sermon several weeks ago, a man named David McClellan. Never heard of him, just some small guy at a small church. But he used a quote, and he said, Christianity begins where every other religion ends, at death. If there is no resurrection, and there is no gospel, our faith is futile, and we're still in our sins. If there is no resurrection, there is no hope. So we've a dead founder of the faith. We have a dead Savior. If we remember, this whole sermon series came from looking at Psalms, Psalm 24, and the question that it stems from is, who is this King of glory? If there was no resurrection, the answer would be, he's a dead man in a grave who made some claims and was not validated by his resurrection. He said he was going to rise. That wasn't validated by God raising him from the dead. He's just a dead man. He's like the rest of us. He's dead. He couldn't defeat death. That's important, isn't it? Death is our enemy, isn't it? The wages of sin is what? Death. We're working for it, aren't we? That's our enemy. And one day it's going to take our bodies and hold it under the ground for a long time till the end of the age. So he says this is the gospel. So I, in my mind, start wondering, if he says the gospel is limited to these two verses... Christ dead, buried, resurrected. Is that different than the gospel, first of all, that we're preaching? And two, do we see evidence of them, the apostles, preaching that gospel? So i start to search scriptures. you all turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Two books back. If you're familiar with this, Acts chapter 2. It's the coming of the Holy Spirit, call it Pentecost. Holy Spirit comes down and people start speaking languages and people start hearing those languages and understand that the gospel is spreading. They start wondering if this group of people that are speaking in different languages are drunk, which I think is hilarious. Most of the time when you're drunk you don't start speaking in a foreign language, you barely speak the one that you know, but that was their conclusion. So, Peter stands up, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he defends them. These guys aren't drunk. This is what was uh, said earlier in the prophet Joel. The Holy Spirit's going to come down. Uh, young men are going to prophesy. Old men dream dreams. So, he gives a, a defense. We're not drunk. We're not crazy. This is the Holy Spirit. And then he preaches. And this is what we're going to examine starting in verse 22. This is his sermon, the first sermon after the coming of the Holy Spirit. Let's see what he includes, let's see what the message is. Verse 22, he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified. You crucified. You killed him. Killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Somebody tell me, did he just say Christ, dead, resurrected? Don't we think that's what he says, What Paul says the gospel is? It's right there, isn't it? It's right there. Did he say anything else? Let me ask you, because this is something I think of. Did he stand up? and say, men of Israel, hear these words, God loves you. No. Why would he not do that? Why would he not do that? He's filled with the Holy Spirit. You know why? That's not the gospel. Let me tell you, literally, yesterday, I'm at work. I'm at one of my accounts. I go into the restroom. I'm washing my hands. I see a sticker. It's like a little name tag you put on. Somebody wrote this. I don't think they're trying to preach the gospel, but they're preaching something. They're communicating something. This is what was written on it. Jesus loves you. Lord, renew my strength when I feel tired and weak. Is it bad to ask the Lord for strength? No. That's not bad. You can do that. Bring everything to the Lord if he needs strength. Ask him for it. But I saw that. I thought, wow. Wow. This person is treating Jesus like a Red Bull. That's what it hit me as. If I'm tired and weak, I hit a Red Bull. I feel a little bit of energy. I thought that's what they've reduced Jesus Christ down to. And I was hit by this contrast. We don't go to Christ for caffeine, but for cleansing. We don't go to Christ for strength renewal, but for righteousness. He's not a genie there to serve us. We are his slaves. We serve him. It's hit by this stark contrast of the world's idea of who Christ is and what they want from him. But that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. Let me ask you: did, did Paul or did Peter here in Acts stand up and say, Come to Christ? I'm just going to say it for health. Wealth and prosperity? Did he? Somebody answer? no. He didn't, did he? That's not the gospel. No form of that is the gospel. Remember what Paul said in Romans 1.16? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And He's not saying here, come to Jesus for what you can get. He's not saying that. He's preaching good news. Christ crucified, dead, buried, raised up. Let's read a little bit further. We just read verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Then he goes to the Old Testament. He appeals from the Old Testament as proof. He says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then he explains, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants upon the throne. Get this. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Did you see that when we read that passage quoted from Psalm 16? Did you pick up on that? If not, he explains it. I'm a little slow sometimes. I have to have stuff explained. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Let's talk about the resurrection of Christ. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. He repeats what he said earlier. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Last verse, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Question, Paul says, Romans 1, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. What effect does this have when Peter gets up It would be validated as a true gospel if there's belief following. Wouldn't you say if you preach a true gospel? Wouldn't you say it would be validated as the true gospel if there are believers after hearing it? Wouldn't you say that would validate it? Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And skip down to the last verse in the section, 41. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about, somebody tell me what it says, in verse 41, how many? 3,000. I'd say that's some validation. I don't know how many people were there. I'd say that's some validation. If that's true, if that's the power of the gospel and of salvation to everyone who believes... We have to take note. We have to take note. This is the gospel. We don't deviate from it. We don't add to it, and we don't take away, do we? Or we're not preaching the true gospel. Is that right? That's right. This is not the only time it's preached. It would be kind of pitiful if this is the only time in the book of Acts where we see the apostles preaching <laughs> Josh, preaching this gospel. No. We'll go to the very next chapter, chapter 3, Peter and John are walking into the temple at the hour of prayer, about the ninth hour. They see a lame man who's sitting there begging. He asks them for money. They say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. The man's healed. He rises up and he walks into the temple with him, rejoicing and praising God. Everybody sees, says, how did this happen? How is this man? We walked past him. He was sitting there, couldn't walk. How is it this man walks? Peter gets up. It says, looking at verse 11, he starts giving an answer. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob the God of our fathers glorified a servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Verse 15, you killed the author of life whom God raised. Let's say he's preaching the gospel. God raised from the dead to this we are witnesses. Skip down to chapter 4. The chief priests and the Sadducees were greatly annoyed because they were, pre- they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus Christ the resurrection of the dead. And so they arrested them. The next day they come before them. And what do you think Peter says? Again, verse 8, chapter 4. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what, me, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. Well, he's preaching the gospel. We could go on and on. We could look at chapter 7 where Stephen is stoned and see how it's at the very end when he says, you killed him, you killed your father's killed all the prophets, and he, he looks up in heaven, and he actually sees the Son of Man at the Father's right hand and declares it, it's the resurrection of the dead. They stone him, they kill him. The man lost his life. The man was literally bludgeoned to death with rocks. It's how much they hate the resurrection of Christ. It's how much the world hates it. So I think we've made our point. We can see that the gospel is limited to three things. Jesus, dead, buried, resurrected. Turn back to 1 Corinthians with me. We've got a few other key verses we want to look at here. I said at the beginning that if you take the resurrection away, you have no Christian faith. And Paul actually says this. this That's where I got it from. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We just looked at that. You know, if you took the resurrection of Christ away, what is Paul going to say? What's Peter going to say at Pentecost? This Jesus whom you crucified, and end there? That's no gospel. That's no good news. That's bad news. Thank you, Josiah. Nod that head. Amen. Josiah is listening. Skip down to verse 17. He says the same thing, but goes a step further. And if Christ has not been raised your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. That's bad news. That's bad news. That's not good. That's not good. How can he say that? How? Think about this. Jesus Christ was crucified for sins, right? If he's dead and buried in the ground and stays there... Who wins, Christ or death? Death Death wins. Death wins. We have no conquering king. We have no one from the human race who has conquered death. We have no king of glory that walks through the gates of heaven. We don't have that. We have a dead man that's like us. Death wins. Who's the ultimate power? Death, he wins. Our hope is that Jesus Christ Dead, buried, resurrected. Without it, we have no hope. Peter says, 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Y'all turn with me real quick. We're going to go there. First Peter 1.3, says this, blessed in chapter 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to His great mercy He has caused us to be, somebody read those next two words, born again. That's John chapter 3 language, isn't it? Born again to a what? Living hope through the what? Yeah. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. We have no conquering king. Death wins. We have no savior. We have no one from the human race walking into heaven based on his righteousness. We have no leader. We have no founder of the faith that is validated. We have a man that made some claims that were not validated by the resurrection of God from the dead. I don't know if this is connecting and making sense. It's a, it's a heavy topic, and a lot of times, our own flesh, the work of the enemy, they put, they put that blocker there, put that blocker there, we need God to open our eyes to it, because this is the truth, this is the truth, and without the Holy Spirit coming in and leading us into the truth, we're not going to get it, we're not going to get it. We're going to look at a claim that Jesus made. Let's turn to John chapter 11. I love John it's what the Lord led me to when he first started opening my eyes to who he was I remember reading it front to back feeling like I was a empty cup of water being put under a a faucet and the faucet turned on just being filled up I read it front to back it wasn't enough went back and read it front to back again did it four times I couldn't get enough I love the book of John in John chapter 11, who knows what John chapter 11 is? You're looking at it now. It's, it's Lazarus. It's Lazarus. The book of John. There's seven "I am" statements accompanied by miracles. It's the backbone of the book. Right, an example would be John chapter 9. Jesus says, "I'm the light of the world." Goes up to a blind man, spits on dirt, puts it on his eyes, says to go wash in this pool. The man does it. His sight's restored. I'm the light of the world. Here's the physical representation. He sees. What does light do? It illuminates, right? Right? It illuminates. We're told that this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but men loved darkness because their deeds were evil. We don't like that penetration of the light. When we're in the world, when we're of the world, when we have not been born again, we hide because that light exposes our wickedness. Jesus says, I am the light of the Lord. So the whole book of John, the backbone of it is these I am statements. This is the last one of them. It's the pinnacle of them. It's the greatest. So in John chapter 11, we're not going to read the whole thing because I started out short on time. (laughs) Hadn't got better. But I want to point this out. Uh, Mary and Martha know that their brother, Lazarus, is ill. They send a, a messenger to him. Please come, he whom you love is ill. And so we've got two statements that Jesus makes to his disciples. We've got to look at that, and then we're going to look at what Jesus says to to Martha. The first one, in John chapter 11, the first one's verse 4. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I want you to skip down to verse 14. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. Now I want to skip down to verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead dead in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went, went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, My brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Can I make a point here? When we think about Martha, we think about the scene where Mary's at the feet of Jesus and Martha's in the kitchen, right? She had obviously been listening at some point. This is the language that Jesus uses in John chapter 6. Don't turn there, I'll I'll just point it out. In John chapter 6, I'm going to read a few key verses. It's Jesus, verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. Talking about people. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You think she heard that anywhere else? It's Christ. She's been listening to Christ. She might have been working in the kitchen, but she's been listening. It's good theology she's got. Martha said to him, verse 24, John 11, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day, and Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? There's two points I want to make here. One, does anyone remember who the first two people to the tomb were on Resurrection Day? Anybody off the top of your head? Yes. Mary Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha. What are we looking at? They're looking at a dead brother in a stone tomb with a stone door. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life to the woman who's going to come to a stone tomb with a stone door. You think that's coincidence? I don't think so. I don't think so. You think it's coincidence that he's teaching her again? He's taught her everybody's going to be resurrected on the last day. You think it's coincidence he's teaching her now the resurrection and the life? Do you believe this? I need you to get it, Martha. I need you to get it. When you come to that tomb on resurrection day and I'm not there, and the picture is the same as here. I need you to think back and remember what I'm saying. I am the resurrection. I am the life. I need you to get, it, to get it. I've got something for you. I need you to be ready for it. It's no coincidence. Second, he doesn't say the same thing twice. He says two things. And I know that because of how he defines each. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He explains the first. Whoever believes in me, though he die yet he shall live, that's resurrection, that's resurrection, and it's a physical, isn't it? It's a resurrection of our body, and that's our hope, that our bodies will be reunited with him for eternity, but then he says, I'm the life, and he explains that differently. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And that is our hope, that we find life in Christ. About, well, that by believing in him, as a matter of fact, the end of John, chapter 20, verse 31, John tells us why he wrote this book. It says this, but these are written so that you may believe, and I want you to notice this because we're about to hit it again, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. Not just resurrection, life. That's here, that's now. Life in his name. So Jesus says two different things and he explains it. It's to Martha, it's very pointed, he needs her to get it. Then he asks her, do you believe this? Now here I want to make a point. I'm going to have to illustrate it with a story because this is the most confusing thing I'm going to say all night. If one of you gets it, that'll be great. I'm not being arrogant. This is a confusing statement. Let's start out with this. Jesus asks her, do you believe? Does he ask her? You've got to, you've got, does he say, do you've got to believe 100%? Does he say, if you believe 1%? Does he quantify it? Does he give an amount? Does he do any of this? It's not in the text. It's never in the text. Belief is a very, very common thing you're going to find throughout Scripture, believing in Christ. It's never quantified. It's never quantified, okay? So let me for a second. There's somebody in this room that's like myself at your age, and there's a burden on your shoulders that you can't get rid of. And The burden comes from this. You are believing in your belief. If you don't get it, I'm going to say it two other ways. Your faith is in your faith, and you're trusting in your trusting. Now let me illustrate what I mean. Thank you. That's the reaction. Yeah, what are you talking about? Here's what I mean. Let me give an illustration. A man goes to a revival, right? The preacher's up there and he's preaching. He's giving it to him. The man feels something, right? So he walks down. And falling down, he starts to... He start, well, a man walks up and says, Brother, what troubles your soul? And he says, I-, I don't know. I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. The man says, Great. Amen. Praise the Lord. Pray this prayer with me. Dear Jesus... I know I'm a sinner. Please come into my life. Give me forgiveness. Save me. I give you my life. Make you Lord of my life. Do whatever it is you want to with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's what happens. Watch this. Everybody, stop what you're doing. And look at me. This is important. This was me. This is what God saved me from. I turned around. I take one step. And mentally, I go back to that moment. And I say, that was it. I did it. I prayed the prayer. I meant it. I was sincere. I trusted in Jesus for my salvation. Does that make sense? What's the object of my faith? My faith. Can that save you? No. As a matter of fact, that will be the person standing before the Lord. Joseph referenced this two weeks ago. Matthew 5. Not Matthew 5, Matthew 12. Wherever it is. 7. Yeah, thank you there are going to be people standing before the Lord and this is what they're going to do. They're going to say, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name and many other mighty works? I had faith. There it is. I can point to it. I can point to it. I'm telling you all, this was a burden because over and over and over I would walk away and I'd be like, did I mean it that time? Did it work? Did I really sincerely believe enough? Maybe I was distracted. Can I be honest with y'all for a minute? Over and over and over, I prayed that prayer. Lord, I'm sorry, I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. That's me, that's me. I'm talking about myself. That's me, and that was a burden. It was a heavy weight on my shoulders. Weighed me down, telling the object of my faith for years was my faith. I believed in my belief. What is Jesus pointing to? The object of your faith is Christ. If you walk away from that moment and you turn away from that moment, you say Christ. The object of your faith is well placed. Christ will say, "I'm sorry. I'm getting loud. I get excited, y'all." Y'all, that's what the Lord did for me. Do you get it? I'm excited about that. I'm very, very thankful that turning away, the Lord got my attention like that, turned my face. He grabbed me by the ears and pulled me face to face with him. He said, it's me. Stop believing in your belief. It will not save you. It's me. Life is in me, not in your faith. That will condemn you at judgment day. You will lose your soul on judgment day if your faith is your faith. It's important. It's important. I'll get loud to get your attention if I need to. It's important. I told you to come back to John 20. What does she say to him in verse 27? When Jesus tells her, I'm the resurrection and the life, he explains, he says, do you believe this? In verse 27, she said to, to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. What did we just read at the end of John? Doesn't that sound familiar a little bit? Verse 31, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. What's her claim? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. I want to point to something because this is supposed to be about the resurrection tonight, right? Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Watch this with me. Starting in verse 3. Concerning his son, who is descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection. Declared to be the Son of God by His resurrection. She believed it before the resurrection that her eyes had been opened. Would you agree? I would say so. We're going to move on. Does anybody in here, this is kind of some weird stuff. Does anybody in here know what the three things are in the Ark of the Covenant? Anybody? Know what one of them are? Know what the Ark of the Covenant is? Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Aaron's staff. Aaron's staff, a pot of manna, and the stone tablets of the law. Three things. Thank you. Three things in there, right? I'm going to point to one of them because it's important. It's very important. Anybody know the story behind Aaron staff budding, bringing life out of a dead stick? Anybody know that story? I'll tell it real quick. Numbers 16 and 17, and I've got to be quick because we are, I've got to be quick. The story goes like this. There's a group of men in Israel that come against Aaron and Moses and they grumble against them. They say, how is it that you're setting yourself up over us? Aren't we all holy why is it that you are the high priest and couldn't we do the job? Moses and Aaron didn't even appoint themselves to that job. God did, but they're grumbling against them, right? So a group of men come to to Moses and Aaron and say, you take too much on yourself. We're not happy about it. And there's a lesson there that we as humans probably do the same thing. We probably say, we can get to God our own way. We don't need the man of God. To have access to him. There's probably a lesson in there for another time. This group of people come to Aaron, Moses, and Grumble against them. God literally opens the earth and they fall into it and then he closes it. It's a really dynamic story. I'm not joking. Before it, Moses said, If these people die a normal death, the way that men die, then you'll know that it's from me. But if God does something, Basically, it's extraordinary. You'll know that it's God, and you'll know that he's validating me and my position. The earth immediately opens up. People fall down alive. It closes up. Everybody freaks out and runs around, thinking that the earth's about to swallow them. Next, there's 250 men who have got censers, a little offering plate. They're burning incense in It's an offering to the Lord. Guess what happens to those 250 men who are with this man named Cor, who just got swallowed up, they get burned alive. 250 men burned alive. It's a true story. Finally, so we go from a few families to 250 men. Finally, the whole assembly comes to Moses and said, you're killing us. We're not happy with you. You're killing us. Moses didn't open that ground. God did. It's beside the point. They're not getting it. A plague breaks out in Israel. The wrath of God falls on them. God says, Moses, get away. I'm going to kill them. I'm going to kill these people. Third time, I'm going to kill them. Then he tells Moses, tell Aaron... Take your censer, it's the offering plate, put the fire from the altar on it, incense on it, run into the camp and make atonement for the people. So Aaron, the high priest, takes a censer, runs into the camp. I got to read this. It's too good. I know we're short on time. You got to hear this, these words. So good. It's a picture of what Christ has done. It's Numbers 16. It's a picture of what Christ has done at the cross. It's a picture of what the resurrection means. So good, y'all. Towards the end of 16, if you want to look at it with me, 16:46. Moses said to Aaron, "Take your censer, put fire on it from the from off the altar, and lay incense on it, and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord; the plague has begun. So Aaron took it as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly." And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. Watch this imagery. Watch this and see Christ in this. Verse 48, And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. That's what Christ did on the cross. He stood on the cross, made atonement, said, Death, no more. That's the plague we're faced with, right? Death. He said, No more made atonement, stopped it. Stopped it. The imagery is Christ that we're seeing here. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700. It's a lot of people. So right after this, you've had three accounts where Israel's grumbling against Moses and Aaron and three powerful testimonies that Moses and Aaron are the men that God has set up. This all started out with how did Aaron's staff bud. So now God says to Moses, get 12 princes of the tribes, we know there's 12 tribes of Israel, let each of them bring a staff, a dead piece of wood, put their names on it, get one for Aaron as well, put them in the tabernacle overnight. The one whose staff will bud is my chosen man. They leave it overnight. The next morning Moses gets it and brings it out. Aaron's staff had not only budded, but it bloomed and bore ripe almonds now, I'm not a farmer, but I'm smart enough to know in spring you've got bloom, sometime during the summer. You no, know, in spring you've got bud. Sometime during the summer you've got bloom for pollination. After pollination, you get the fruit. I farmed squash for years. I know the pattern. You don't have all three. You don't have them within a 12-hour period. It's a powerful testimony, right? It's a powerful. Testimony. What's it pointing to? What does that teach us? What does that teach us? The resurrection of that staff teaches us that Aaron is God's chosen man, the high priest, the one who makes atonement, the one who intercedes. It's God's man. You have access to God through him. What does the resurrection of Christ point us to? It is God's man. God validated Christ by the resurrection. Romans 4.25 said he was given for our transgressions, and raised for our justification. How do we get justification? We didn't do anything, but He was justified. You know what justified means? I was taught growing up that justification, you could say, just as if I'd never sinned. Justification. Just as if i That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. If somebody comes before a judge and they say, I saw this person speeding, exceeding the speed limit, they need to be, they have the book thrown at them, whatever. You go before the judge and there's video footage. You never went above 49 and a 50. Did you break the law? No. So you're declared innocent of guilt, but that judge would declare you righteous. That's a law abiding citizen. Not only have they not broken it, but they've kept it. Joseph pointed this out Jesus' death and resurrection was not just the forgiveness of our sins, it was our justification are being declared righteous. Think about this with me. If somehow you could have your sins forgiven. And at that moment, at that moment, you stand at the gates of heaven. Could you step in on that basis alone, being declared innocent of sin? Can you? Can you step into heaven? You can't. You can't. Jesus told the crowds, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and pharisees you will never enter enter you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven we need christ's death because we are sinners and we need forgiveness but without his resurrection without justification we're not going anywhere right you see that just like aaron's staff a dead piece of wood being resurrected, God saying, that's my man, the man that I have chosen. It is no different with Christ. Resurrection is not a fairy tale. It's God's declaration. That's my son declared to be the son of God by his resurrection. Amen? Without it, we have... No gospel to preach. Without it, our faith is in vain. And without it, we're still in our sins. Finish with this story. I heard John MacArthur say it in one of his sermons. I think he might have said it's true. I don't know. I guess it doesn't matter. There's a wealthy businessman. He had a son. And he made it. It was kind of his vice. He collected art, expensive, rare, beautiful art. He spent his fortune on it, and his son was going to inherit it. His son died before the father, and the father was so stricken with grief that he died shortly after. So there's this vast wealth of riches that belong to no one. So they start going through the estate, and they find the man's will. And he stipulates in it that he wants everything to be sold at auction to the highest bidder. He also stipulates that the first thing he wants to go at auction is an oil painting of his son. It's not worth anything. It's not famous. It wasn't painted by anyone famous. But he loved his son. And he wants that to be the first item auctioned. So the day of the auction comes... And true to the will, they put the painting of the man's son up. And they start the auction. There are plenty of wealthy people that have, could have paid vast sums of money for that painting, but it had no value to them. It was not a famous work of art. So nobody bid until finally a servant of that house, who had known the father, who had known the son, raised his hand and made a bid, 75 cents, nothing, pennies. No one outbid him. So the auctioneer said, sold. The man gets the painting. At that moment, the auctioneer says, this concludes the auction. Everybody's disgruntled, dismayed, confused. They say, what are you talking about? There's a vast wealth of art back there that we want to get our hands on. We came here for a piece of it. There was a third stipulation in this man's will. Whoever it was that valued the painting of the sun was to inherit that vast wealth of riches. John 5 says that he that hath the sun hath life He that hath not the Son hath not life. Joseph used an example two weeks ago of trusting a parachute because a plane is going down. A plane's going down. And you look to the thing that's designed to save your life at that moment. Does the thing care how much you believe in it? Only that you believe enough to lay hold of it and leave the plane with it. If you're scared to death falling through the air because you've never done it before, the parachute doesn't care. Just pull the cord. It will save you. It will save you. Parachute's not saying you've got to believe 100%. You've got to believe sincerely. Parachute just says, strap me on, I'll do it. That's Christ. Lay hold of Christ. Lay hold of Christ. There's a flood of God's wrath that will come whether you believe it or not. And there's an ark of safety called Jesus. Get inside. He that hath the Son hath life. Let's pray. Lord, only You can open up our eyes to see the glory of the resurrection and what it means. Pray that You would do it even for myself. I pray that you'd be glorified by it. Thank you so, so much that your son is alive and not dead. And what that means for us. Make a prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.